My father died 25 years ago when I was on my first ever sabbatical in South Africa. I still remember getting the phone call in the middle of the night from my brother Billy. My family waited for me to get home in, in order to have the funeral. And so began a long journey back with layovers in several cities, Durban, Amsterdam, Atlanta, until finally I got to Chicago, where I grew up. That same brother picked me up at the airport and took me to my mother's house. When we got there and we were unloading the car, he stopped and looked at me intently and said, I have just one question for you. Will I ever see my father again? I'm sure this is a question that almost anyone who has ever lost a cherished family member or a good friend has asked and has hoped for. I don't really recall what I said to my brother, but I think it must have been something like, well, I certainly hope so. No, we will see him again. I think we really will see him again. I was reminded of this incident when I read today's second lesson from the first letter of Peter, who says, always be ready to give an, an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. I know that grief can cloud the memory, but I was sure that my brother wasn't looking for a theological explanation or a bunch of platitudes. He wanted me to comfort him, to reassure him, and yet, I distinctly remember that what I said was somehow a challenge to my own faith. Could I really give a reason for my hope? Of course, I certainly do hope that I will see my father again, and not only him, but others in my family who've died, like my younger sister and brother, or my aunts and my grandparents, and my mother who's still alive but is in quarantine in a nursing home as well as many good friends and mentors who have gone to God before me. But as for giving an account or a reason for my hope, well, that is where I sometimes stumble. In the face of a loved one's passing or when we are approaching our own death, and especially in this madly frustrating experience of living in a pandemic that has threatened the whole world, Giving a reason for one's hope can be a very challenging request. It was especially hard for the community to whom Peter was addressing. Biblical scholars tell us that this letter, written in the name of the Apostle Peter toward the end of the first century, addresses three major themes, baptism, suffering, and other exhortations. Yet despite its many references to suffering, the background for this letter is not one of Roman persecution. Rather, it reflects the alienation that family, from family, neighbors, and society in general that newly baptized Christians in the early church experienced as a result of their conversion to Jesus. Their allegiances, old allegiances to the gods of their family and the city gods had to be relinquished, and this caused a shift of loyalties that brought about tension within their families and in civic society. So when Peter writes, telling the newly baptized, 
Be ready to give reason for your hope to anyone who asks. He follows that up with, but do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. He exhorts them further, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be the will of God, than for doing evil. In our own time, perhaps we can think of situations where our choices or our decisions have created tension within our families or among our friends, perhaps even cutting off relationships. I'm thinking here especially of the choices that we make to be authentic, risks we take in coming to terms with who we are, who we are called to be, prophetic commitments that we have made and the values that they are based on, these we cherish. Whether they are political commitments or disagreements or even agreements with the church, on, as particularly on significant social issues, or promises we've made, or perhaps broken. All of these choices, including those we didn't choose, most especially these precarious situations caused by the coronavirus pandemic, joblessness, food insecurity, our elders and veterans dying alone in nursing homes and hospitals, exhausted parents trying to balance working at home and overseeing their children's education, seeing the future plans that we have made or the provisions for our retirement collapse and disappear. All of these are stressors and have a bearing on whether we are able to give an accounting for our hope. At best, we may feel resigned. At worst, we seem simply paralyzed. And yet for me, the reading from John's Gospel for this sixth Sunday of Easter offers us some good news and a reason for our hope, even though we are living with painful situations. The gospel for today comes from the first of Jesus's farewell discourses in John's gospel. Chapter 14 starts out with, do not let your hearts be troubled. Many of us might think of funeral masses for which this gospel is a familiar selection. Midway through the discourse, Jesus promises that he goes to the Father and he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. In my name, if you ask me for anything, I will do it. Wow. How's that for a reason for hope? But then right after that, in the passage assigned for today, Jesus reminds us that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. That saying immediately brings to mind the new commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples at their last meal together. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And it was in that act of foot washing where Jesus gave us the example of how to do this. We are to serve one another humbly even to the point of relinquishing that which is most dear to us, perhaps our reputations, our status, and ultimately, as Jesus did himself, our very lives.
Today we find ourselves among the, we who find ourselves among the privileged often hear that we are losing a way of life that we have come to take for granted. Going out to dinner, seeing movies in theaters, face-to-face -face learning in classrooms, even receiving Holy Communion. We are sobered by the possibility that even if these activities eventually can be resumed, until a vaccine can be developed, our very lives may be at stake. Of course, such life-threatening situations have long been familiar to the poor, to refugees, to those living in war-torn areas, to victims of sexual abuse and domestic violence, or anyone who has ever been excluded on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation. The virus has become the great leveler. It does not discriminate. And yet this daunting reminder of what it means to be a follower of Jesus need not leave us in despair. For Jesus promises us that he will not leave us orphans. He asks the Father, his Abba God, to give us an advocate, a spirit of truth who will be with us always. My colleague in the theology department, Michael Himes, has made a video that I use in my class on the Gospel of John. And in that video, he explains what this word advocate means. In Greek, it is parakletos or paraclete. And it is variously translated as counselor, comforter, or as it is here in the lectionary, uh, as advocate. Now, in a legal context, it meant someone who sits by the side of the plaintiff in court to advise, defend, and to give guidance. In John's Gospel, however, this counselor or advocate represents both the presence and activity of God and the continuing presence of Jesus in the community. In the video, Father Himes adds an interesting tidbit taken from a sermon from the 19th century Jesuit poet-priest, Jared Manley Hopkins. He adds this to his explanation. Hopkins, who was known for his playfulness, playfulness with words especially, gave a sermon to his congregation in Liverpool in which he asked, what is a paraclete? A paraclete is one who comforts, who cheers, who encourages, who persuades, who exhorts, who stirs up, who urges forward, who calls on. What the spur and the word of command is to a horse. And here Michael Himes interrupts his reading from Hopkins and says, you know, giddy up, giddy up. That's what the paraclete is all about. So he returns to Hopkins and continues, the paraclete is like clapping, what clapping is to a speaker, what a trumpet is to a soldier. That is what the paraclete is to the soul, one who calls us to the good. The paraclete is something or someone that cheers the spirit of one with signals and with cries, all zealous that one can do something and full of assurance that if one will, one can, calling us on 
springing to meet us halfway, crying to our ears or to our heart, this way to do God's will, this way to save your soul. Come on, come on. Now Hopkins uses an analogy uh, to end this description of the paraclete uh, from cricket and the British game of cricket. Now I'm not that familiar with cricket. I'm an American. So I tend to think of my Boston College students lining up on Commonwealth Avenue during the Boston Marathon, urging the runners up Heartbreak Hill, come on, come on, you can do it. Or I think of the former TV sportscaster, Jack Brickhouse from my hometown in Chicago, yelling, hey, hey, Ernie, when the Cubs' Ernie Banks is rounding third base and heading for home. Yes, this is what the message of the sixth Sunday of Easter has for us during the time of the coronavirus. As we look forward, forward towards Pentecost in just a few weeks, as we ponder how to give an account for our hope that we will not be left orphans, let us remember that we already have been given the gift of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who is urging us on, saying, giddy up, giddy up. I am by your side. I am right with you. I will not let you fail. <laughs>